Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling. Today, I'm really excited to have my good friend, Barnabas Piper, in the studio with me. Barnabas is a prolific writer and speaker. He currently works for Lifeway Christian Resources on their Ministry Grid team, and he's a regular columnist for World Magazine. He's also the author of two books, The Pastor's Kid and his soon-to-be-released book, Help My Unbelief. We're going to talk to Barnabas about a few things, about faith, about doubt, about the writing life, about sports. Him and I are both avid sports fans, so this will be a great opportunity to talk about sports on my podcast. Always looking for those opportunities. Before we begin our conversation, though, I want to tell you about a really neat event we're doing uh, at the SBC in Columbus in a couple of weeks. If you're going to be there, I want you to mark your calendar for Monday night, June 15th at 9 p.m. We're partnering with Nine Marks Ministries to put on an event with Dr. Russell Moore and Dr. Mark Dever will be taking your questions and uh, we'll have a, just a really good time, good interaction and answer some very important questions about the intersection of church and culture. You can get your tickets by going to my website and clicking on the link there or you can stop by our booth at the SBC and get your free tickets there. So we hope to see you at this important event Monday night, June 15th, 9 p.m., with Nine Marks Ministries and the ERLC. But for now, let's join our conversation with Barnabas Piper. So I have my friend Barnabas Piper here on, on the podcast. Welcome to the Way Home Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. Do you feel like privileged to be finally be on this podcast? I do, and this studio that you record in makes me feel much more significant than I actually yes. am. Is it kind of like getting on Oprah. It's like one thing to check off your bucket list. Do I get a free car? <laughs> no, you don't. Oh, well, I no, get a free like. Then it's not like Oprah at all. ERLC like uh, coaster or something like Do that. I get to meet Rob Bell? No, you don't. Oh, also not like Oprah. Yeah, he probably, I don't think he's been in this building. So I, It's hard to imagine him finding a reason to come here. Yeah, exactly. So I want to talk about, about writing because you're a prolific writer about sports, because you and I both like sports. I'm a prolific sports junkie. Yes, just like I am. And then also about your book, mm-hmm. uh, Help My Unbelief, that is going to be released pretty soon here. So first writing. So how long have you been a writer? Have you? Is this something you've always wanted to do, like ever since you were in school? No, I mean, I, I always found writing to come pretty easily mm-hmm. when I was in school. So uh, I preferred, you know, I preferred an essay exam to a you know, to anything where I had to memorize stuff. So it, was, it just sort of came naturally. But I didn't write for anybody else to read it other than just a handful of sort of like a, a news, church newsletter thing here or a, you know, a school newspaper thing there until really just about four or five years ago, I guess it was at this point. And so I had, I had been doing a lot of journaling and, mm-hmm. and then had written just a handful of these sort of one-off things for different little you know guest blog posts here, things like that. And it seemed like people's responses to them were good. And I just sort of started to become an itch. And I was like, I really should try this. So I just started my own blog. And relatively quickly, the traffic numbers weren't huge. I've never been a, a you know a major blogger in that sense, but the but the response from readers was really strong, and it turned into some other opportunities. So writing for uh, World Magazine's website, for example, was something mm-hmm. that came just six or eight months later. A number of other posts. So for Table Talk Magazine was one that was actually the article that sort of kickstarted mm-hmm. my first book, The Pastor's Kid, and so it just sort of grew from there to the point where I realized I loved it. I realized people responded well when I wrote, which 
is, I think is probably the, the litmus test of whether or not you ought to be publishing anything is the readers. actually People actually like yeah, it. Well, to, yeah, to people connect with it. Yeah. Um, and, and so then it's just sort of progressed from there. And, and now it's something where I have a very hard time imagining myself not doing mm-hmm. it. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to make a career out of it. That's a very hard thing to do, but it's something I don't anticipate ever stopping. You know, it's, it, it's such an interesting time because, and I tell writers this all the time, like you can start writing just like on a blog, just start your own mm-hmm. blog, just kind of working out your writing when no one's reading it, which is probably good <laughs> yeah. in the first few months. And, and then if you're good, you will get noticed. Like pe- you will get noticed and and opportunities will open up. I remember kind of in the old days of, of writing, when I first started, you had to send query letters to these publications like mm-hmm. Moody Monthly yep. or Christianity Today or any of the CT publications or Discipleship Journal yeah. back when that was a thing. And I just remember like writing these query letters and being kind of nervous and sending it off and getting rejected or whatever. And you still kind of do that with some of the bigger publications or, you know, you send emails, but like... There's also a way to just start writing and getting notes. It's very similar with music, right? Yeah. People put their stuff on YouTube and yeah, the, and the, the good stuff rises, doesn't it? Does it not? The digital space has created something where you don't you don't need permission to be published anymore yeah. in the same way. Now you you do if you want to get into, you know, into book publishing. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, you can self-publish your book, but there's there's generally a ceiling on that. Um magazines, things like that. Those are that you need permission to get into those, but not just to get noticed and to, yeah. and to and like you said to work out your writing. And I think that's probably the benefit of a blog as much as anything is mm-hmm. is creating the practice of writing. So when I started, I wanted to do when I first set out, I wanted to do a post every day, Monday through Friday. Yeah. Realize real quick that is only Tim Challies does that. <clears throat> well, it's overwhelming. Well, and even Challies um, does links posts and stuff, so he's yeah. putting content up daily, right. but he's not writing a new piece daily. So then it was just twice a week. And twice a week I could do. And so having that consistency, I mean, it's it's just like anything else. Practice yeah. makes you better. You know, if you want to if you want to be more fit, you work out regularly. This you get better at writing over time. Periodically, you plateau until you kind of mm-hmm. you figure out some new things. But so it, it's great for the discipline. It's great to get noticed. And and yeah, and then the internet is also the place where everything gets shared. So yeah. if you have a post that really touches a nerve, whether it's a current events kind of thing or a humor post or whatever, it'll blow up. And all of a sudden, instead of getting 100 views a day, you get you know, 4,000. That's really changed everything. I mean, it's really cool because you can actually see the maturation of a writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's people that I've been reading for several years and was first started reading, like, oh, they're pretty good. And then just kind of watch them grow as, they're, as they personally grow and their writing gets better. I feel like that. With myself, like, you know, you're, there's opportunities to blog and then you get noticed. And then and then there's this kind of different levels, right? Mm-hmm. Like you get an article in this particular publication and it's kind of like like another level. But, and um, it's, it's great as well as a writer to go back and evaluate yourself because yeah. if I go back four years and look at what I wrote, there are some pieces I look at that I go, I'm pretty good. I, I did well. Yeah. And then other ones I look at and I go... Ugh, that was, Please nobody that was read pretty this. Weak. I'm glad that's really old. Yeah, and but you get to kind of see. You also, if you read four or five or six of your pieces spread out over time, you get to see kind of what your writing ticks are. Yeah, you know, if you're speaking, and you, you kind of find your say, um or something, and you, in your writing, you find these crutches that you regularly. You go find to. your rhythm too. Yeah. I feel like I'm. I'm just curious how you work with ideas. I think that's one of the reasons you know you're a writer is like you can't help yourself. So right. like. I, I don't, where do you get ideas? Like I, I, sometimes I'll be sitting in church and hearing a great sermon from our pastor and I just like, it springs some idea and I'm writing it down and, or just, you just get, 
I mean, where do you get your ideas? It kind of, I mean, I just am on the lookout for them. It's yeah. just the, there are the way that the way that my mind works and the way that I intentionally mm-hmm. try to think is just every time you hear something, it could be a single phrase that somebody says while you're you're having uh-huh. lunch with a handful of coworkers. And somebody says this phrase and it just sparks something. Yeah. And you go, there's a connection there, and so you just write it down. And so I have this Evernote file of mm. of article ideas or some, and and probably eighty percent of them will cannot be developed into an article. But yeah. there, there was something there when I heard it or read it yeah. or saw it, and I wanted to write it down. I mean, I, I wrote a blog post several months ago about – I was walking down Broadway Avenue here in Nashville at like 10 a.m. on a Monday. I just was strolling down there. And so it's it's a ghost. It was the, oh, it was the Monday after the Super Bowl. Oh, and yeah. so it's just – it's a ghost town. There's trash everywhere. And I hear this this guy playing a guitar in a bar because that's what people do on <laughs> Broadway in Nashville, yeah. everywhere. And – uh and I glance in, there's nobody in there because it's 10 or 11 a.m. on a Monday. Mm. And he's just grinding away on his guitar. And and so to me, I looked at that and it just sparked something. And I go, that's what it takes to figure out how to do a creative endeavor. Absolutely. You need to be willing to do the 10 a.m. empty bar on a Monday thing. And so where did that idea come from? It, it came yeah. from walking to go get coffee. Yeah. So it's just that kind of thing. And I, yeah, I always tell people like, you know, you're, you're writer. Like if you just like, I don't feel like I ever run out of ideas. I just feel like there's always stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you, are you the type of person that you're already thinking if it's a really hot idea, are you thinking, here's an idea, here's where it would really be good. Here's a, here's a good outlet where it would be good. I mean, do you strike while the iron's hot? Like you get an idea and you just crank it out or do you save it? I mean, de- what do you do? It depends. I mean, you know, there's some ever, there are some ideas that are uh, more evergreen ideas. Mm-hmm. They're a little bit more conceptual. Maybe they're spiritual life related yeah. or something like that. And those are the kind of things that I kind of want to flesh out over time. And so mm-hmm. I'll write it down and kind of work at it bit by bit, come back to it. But then there's stuff, you know, um, current events things, the riots in Baltimore. Yeah. Or, or, or I write on primarily sports-related stuff for World. Mm-hmm. And so um, – those are the kind of things you go, well, I have to write it right now because in a week, it's not going to be on right. people's minds. The The point of what I write might still be relevant, but nobody's going to read it then. Yeah. And so then, yeah, but but even then, it it's the kind of thing that with those, probably 99 out of 100 big events that happen, I don't write anything about because yeah. the blogosphere has it covered. Right. There's a million responses. Yeah, they don't need mine. But then there's sometimes when I look around and I go, I see a hundred of the same kind of responses and mm-hmm. none of this kind. And yeah. this is what's needed over here. And so, I, yeah, I'll sit down and yeah. in 40 minutes knock out a response because that's the thing that's just sort of like burning up inside me. Yeah. So you write a lot about sports, but particularly for world, but mm-hmm. uh, you're a big sports fan. Have you always been? I mean, you grew up in Minnesota, so... Was it <laughs> so? Didn't have a lot to go on. Well, you had the Twins winning World, That's true. You know, world Series twice and, in my first ten years. That was um, nice. Is it something that you were always just a sports fan growing up? Was your family a sports fan or sports fans? I mean, you know my uh, my parents did very little to to sort of push me into liking certain kinds of things. Mm-hmm. The things that were always in front of us were books, and so yeah. Yeah, I, I I learned to love reading very early. But then I have a brother who's who was who got heavily into music, mm-hmm. loves music. Um, uh, my oldest brother is uh, he's a creative writer, but he was the baseball fan of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a brother who was a an avid soccer player all the way up through high school and was was very good, um, and just kind of did that. 
Yeah. Um, but all of us just kind of found our own thing. And so for me, sports was sort of, it was a thing that I did that actually none of my siblings did quite the same with the same level of sort of investment. Yeah. My oldest brother loved and loves the twins, uh, Minnesota mm-hmm. twins. Um, and I think I, I kind of followed in his yeah. footsteps a bit. But yeah, basically from seven or eight years old, I mean, it was get up in the morning and I'd find the the funny papers yep. in, in the Minneapolis Star Tribune and the sports section. And yep. that was all I read uh, in the morning. And if I had to get up early and I actually got up before the newspaper got there, it was so disappointing to just wait until it got there because <laughs> it was, yeah, it was box scores and and uh, cold cereal for, I mean, that was my breakfast routine. Um it's such as a different world now because I remember same thing. Like the newspaper was such a big thing yeah. for, in our family. Yep. We didn't have a TV in our house. Um, so we, I, I read a lot and I mean, just getting that newspaper, I think we got it Sundays and Wednesdays and maybe sometimes on Saturdays and just like, you know, you unwrap it and there's just like potential in there for reading and content and like well, particularly yeah. sports. I mean that it was such a, such a big thing, right? Yeah, and, and so, yeah, like the beat columnists who cover mm-hmm. your favorite team, so Vikings, Timberwolves, yeah. Twins. I mean, those guys were the – those were the information outlet. Yeah. And then what, what probably late 90s, early 2000s is when things shifted and the internet became that source. And then ESPN.com just oh, – yes. Like they became sort of the clearinghouse and SportsIllustrated.com. And so now the newspaper is – Kind of relatively irrelevant, yeah. but a lot of those guys have moved their stuff online. So I yeah. still follow all of the Star Trek columnists. I yeah. just read their blogs and follow them on Twitter. I feel like even with Twitter, you can get closer to these guys because, yeah. like, you can really tailor it and follow like certain, you know, certain sports columnists, certain, you know, w- whatever you want to do, and you can get right close to the action. So if you could rank sports like NBA, NFL, MLB. Mm-hmm. I think both of us don't like soccer, right? So yeah, I don't really. Care I don't. I don't get soccer. Um, so how well, how would you rank them? Um, well, baseball is baseball is the sport that sort of just sort of owns my soul, yeah. and I think a lot of that's because it goes back to Kirby Puckett and yeah. two World Series championships before I was ten years old, and so uh, baseball is it's the one that I look at and I go, if I could get my kids to like one sport, just as fans, mm-hmm. that would be it. And then NFL and NBA, it's really just whatever sport is peaking. I like, yeah. I would say I like them both equally, but there are months out of the year when, when like the NFL in the fall just rules. It does. And then the NBA uh, from like really leading up to the all-star break and then through the playoffs yeah. rules Although that's also baseball season, so it's yeah. I, you know I kind of juggle those two. Uh, don't really care much about the NHL, which is funny having grown up in Minnesota. But uh, and then college sports, you know, I know we live in Tennessee now, yeah. and they are God here. But I don't really care about those very much either. I if, might I, get I might get into college football because they have a playoff now. I mean, I, that I, was the big turnoff for me. Was like I follow it. I mean, I follow college football and basketball. I enjoy mm-hmm. them, but just as a pure fan, my rooting interests are in the professional sports yeah, level. And from a qualitative standpoint, it's like watching junior varsity versus varsity. Yeah. It's yeah. such a different game. There's a sweet spot with like. So we're recording this now in May. It'll probably post like in June. But you've got the NBA playoffs, mm-hmm. which are really good, and then you've got baseball starting up, and, and like summers. Like we're starting to yeah, we're tipping we're in into spring, summer. tipping into summer. And it's just a sweet spot where mm-hmm. every night there's some kind of enjoyable sports yep. contest on TV. And it's not like a, I've got to watch it. It's the thing everyone's watching, but just kind of like almost background music to like everything else you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm enough of a baseball junkie that I purchased the MLB TV package just to watch online. 
because I'm not, since I don't live in the Twin Cities anymore, yeah. I can, none of their games are no black, blackout. None of the, yeah. yeah, no blackouts for me here. That's awesome. So literally every night, well, unless it's an off night, I have a Twins game on after my kids go to bed and it's, yeah, it's the background noise while I write articles yeah. or whatever it is. And it's... It's just sort of the perfect summer atmosphere background. The NBA's gotten good again. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was a yes. grew up in Chicago, big Jordan fan. There was that awesome era with, you know, Jordan and and, and Barkley and Malone and Hakeem and all those guys, and then it kind of dipped for a while. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the, it, it's really back with the talent level, and the games are really much more enjoyable. Well, they now, made aren't some they? they made some rule changes that sort of changed the the, yeah. the pace and flow of play. Where they, you know, the New York Knicks and the Cleveland Cavaliers ruined basketball in the late nineties. <laughs> yes, they did. And then, but then they they changed some of the rules, and so all of a sudden, it's it is it, it resembles that nineteen eighties yeah. and early nineties basketball a little bit more. Yeah, I guess probably the bad boy Pistons ruined it before the Knicks did. Yeah, so let's blame. Them. I have no problem blaming the Pistons or I'm the Knicks. Sure, you don't. So, so let's talk about your book. You have a new book called "Help My Unbelief," and I was really intrigued by this book. For one thing, you know, both of us have grown up evangelical, you know, Christian environment. You you obviously grew up in a prominent home. You wrote about that in Pastor's Kid. And so there's kind of an understanding that I think that if you grow up in a Christian home, you're just supposed to, supposed to sort of get it, right? right? So there's never any kind of wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know, when I wrote about that in one of my books, I just talked about like, we almost look at it like an assembly line, like you put these little kids in yes. one end and they come out toy soldiers and they just get it, um, which is really antithetical, right, to what the Bible talks about. When about each of us having an yeah, encounter, and, and right? Just with human experience, nobody works that way. Yeah. And if you ask anybody their story, it doesn't mesh with that. And yet, that like, I agree that that is sort of the mindset of how it's quote unquote supposed to work. Yeah. If I do X as a parent, my children will respond Y, and they will end up being good little saints. Yeah. As if it works that way. You know, Fuller University did a study uh, not long ago of kids who actually stayed in the church. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was amazing that they found is of kids who stayed in the church, a, a high percentage of them were allowed to kind of work out their doubts while in like junior high, high school well, that, that and had makes, a safe yeah. environment. I, I hate using the term safe environment because that's such a cliche now, but really it was like they could they could wrestle with their Yeah, with their but faith. It, that makes total sense because, because without that freedom, mm-hmm. there is – you are forced to do one of two things. Either say, I do not believe – or to say yeah. I do believe, but be faking it. Yeah. Whereas if you're if you're working out these questions, if you live so so that my book Help My Unbelief was is sort of built on this concept out of Mark nine, where the father comes to mm-hmm. Jesus for help, uh, with you know he has a demon possessed son and he says Can you help me? And Jesus says I can if you believe. And he says I believe. Help my unbelief. So you, it, the same man in a moment believes and mm-hmm. and un, and doesn't believe simultaneously, yeah. and that. That is the Christian experience yeah. to such a degree, but we very often, as a church, force people to "I believe" and are terrified of help my unbelief. Like mm-hmm. that is not a safe place. That's a, we should feel guilty for that. We should um, we should flee from that. We need to have all of our questions answered. And as you as you said earlier, that doesn't even mesh with what the Bible says about who God is or the very nature of Scripture. Yeah, I mean, it, the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions, and it's not designed to. God gave us what we needed, not everything that there is. And sometimes with all of our systems, mm-hmm. which I think are good in many ways. I mean, evangelicals are good at kind of systematizing discipleship, and, and in many ways that, that that can be very good. But I think we – don't we forget kind of the the human 
and and sort of the personal aspect of every person's faith. So, you know, the Bible, you know, really describes faith as, you know, or the gospel and conversion as a miracle. Each one's a miracle. And I think we forget about that, right? Like we just kind of have these systems we want to produce masses of disciples and we sort of we sort of forget that that process, right? Yeah, we we want a plug and play mm-hmm. everything. Um and I, I, this may be a distinctly Western thing. I yeah. think it's definitely a post-Enlightenment thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's several hundred years. But this idea that everything must be proven as well. I think one of the things that I, that I try to address in the book is there's sort of these, it's these two camps of people. One are those people who have never doubted or questioned anything. Mm-hmm. I fear for those people. Yeah. Because something is going to happen in their life that makes their, their house of cards faith mm-hmm. just tumble down around them. Because they've never asked a question, they've never had their faith tested. I mean, there's so many, so many church leaders and brilliant saints in history have said untested faith is is faith that's questionable. Yeah. And then the other hand are the people who question everything. They they're never satisfied with an answer. There's never answers. Right. Yeah. And and to a degree, that can be a healthy thing because asking questions. I mean, earlier we were talking about writing and where do your ideas mm-hmm. come from? Ideas come from asking questions. What about this? What about that? You you always you pursue to things to the next step. But when it comes to faith in God, there has to be there has to be a foundation at least that you go, well that's just who God is. How do we know this? You have to simply believe that what God says about God is true. And and you you it's the personal relationship aspect. His character reveals to me who he is. All the stuff that I don't yet understand, I may not understand. And I can ask, but it always needs to come back to, I know God's character, I know who God is, and I, I can't question that piece. It seems like there's, just to kind of reiterate what you're saying, right, like there's two equal and opposite dangers. One is to be, like you said, never have our faith tested, mm-hmm. to kind of have all the theological answers or, or have it all figured out. Right. And, and sometimes I look at people like that and I'm like, you know, some of the best saints in history wrestled with these very high yeah. concepts That's... of God and and like embraced the tension there. And on the other hand, I feel like there's also a danger of people are afraid of certainty. Like they're afraid of... Planting a flag on yeah. something. And it seems like in our generation, among younger Christians, like there's almost a celebration of not knowing anything mm-hmm. and kind of we're all messy, we're all this, which we are. Yeah. Messy and certain. We don't want anything black and white. Everything is gray. Yeah. 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 And there's kind of yeah, nothing to hold on to, mm-hmm. right? And that's where I say most of life is gray. Mm-hmm. Much of theology is gray. Yeah. But there are things that you, you in order to, to yeah. I mean, a relationship with God says God is good. God is sovereign, yeah. God is omnipotent, and then some of the outworkings of that. It says definitive things about the work of yeah. Jesus and who Jesus is. Those things, you don't question those things. Right. Things like, how do I know God exists when I can't see him? Yeah. Um, things like when the Bible says seemingly contradictory things, okay, man is responsible for his own actions, God is sovereign over everyone's actions. How do those two things mesh? Nobody knows except God, but God is infinite, we're not, and so he clearly expands beyond us. So that's gray. Yeah. And that's not worth killing each other over yeah. on Twitter or in person. Especially and, on Twitter. <laughs> right. Nothing is worth killing each other over on yeah. Twitter. But then there are these other things that you look at and go, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know God is good, God is uh, God is infinite, God is sovereign, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank on that. And, and, and really, 
isn't the prayer help my unbelief really a statement of humility yeah and almost a statement of worship right yeah and i think it's it's a for a doubter you know the people because there there are skeptics who are more like ah, i'm not sure i believe any of this stuff and then there are doubters who it's more like an anxiety kind of thing i i just Mm-hmm. They don't feel confident in God. For them, that prayer should be a prayer of great hope because in order to pray it, you have to believe something about God. Right. You have to believe that there's a God who hears it. You have to believe yeah. that he might answer it. So you you are staking a claim of belief. So you can look at yourself and go, oh, look, God is doing something in my life. All of this anxiety that I have, uh, there, God is doing something in spite of that, possibly through it. And uh, And so I can pray that prayer in humility and just say, God, help me get beyond this place, but thank you for what you're doing right now. Yeah. And help my unbelief to me, to the like the the seminary student or something needs to be prayed, seems like, because mm-hmm. it's easy to get so wrapped up in these theological conversations, yeah. which are good and to, as you're learning theology and you're studying it, to kind of start to feel like you've got it all figured out. And and, and this, I, this prayer kind of humbles us. Right? I think that, yes, it does. I think that crowd, that that uh, well-educated, possibly know-it-all crowd, I would put myself pretty firmly in, in that camp mm-hmm. if I was going to struggle with something. Yeah. Uh, more often than not is I have a strong theological base and I probably put too much hope in it. And so for that crowd, they need to, we need to define what does I believe actually mean? Because I believe doesn't mean I have collected a lot of things that I that I deem true. Mm-hmm. It means that you have this transformative, connected faith in God. And so it's something that has, you can look at your life and say, there are things that are different because I believe this, not just I assent to these things being true. And and to, to stand up and say, you know, I I don't have enough faith. I don't believe mm-hmm. enough. I, yeah. I may know these things. I may have an MDiv. I may have a PhD or whatever, but I'm still back at that place where I don't. I need God to build my faith. I need God to give me that faith. And and what a, what a humble statement to to make. I mean, imagine if more Christian leaders really admitted that in public as they're preaching that. Yeah, I know these things. Yeah, but I also there's a lot I don't know. Yeah, instead of sort of coming from the here, here's everything that I have yes. that you need, you yeah. poor peons in the pews. Right, yeah. Was there a time in your life or a p- particular catalyst when you started thinking about this, um, you know, about where you wrestled with yeah. doubt and faith? And I, I went through a period, so multiple times in my life, I you know, I just, I made some really stupid, sinful decision. And, and at no point did I really stop to reflect where did that come from? Yeah. For somebody who claims to believe, for somebody who most of the time lives like a believer, where did that thing come from? Yeah. Like it just sort of welled up out of nowhere. And it kind of hit a crisis point in my mid-20s. <clears throat> I ended up losing a job um, that that I really enjoyed and was and, – and it was a really – I mean, it was a blessing to have that job working for some really good people um, because I made a series of really stupid decisions. And the ramifications of that – went inward into my heart. Again, this real deep, you know, God sort of finally just ripped the lid off and he said, look, we're going to, we are going to expose where this stuff comes from. (laughs) And then the outward, which is my family, my wife, I had two little girls, they didn't really know what was going on, but, um, and the effects of sin on other people. And so that was the thing where things finally tipped. And Mm -hmm. so instead of, instead of the sort of 
we're just going to get past this. It was, no, we were going to go right through this. And that was when, that was when I had to, to finally figure out again, what is, what do I believe and what do I just assent to? Mm-hmm. I know a lot of things are true, but which of them are directing my life? And so that was my relationship with God changed dramatically then. Not in a, I didn't, I didn't become sort of this glowing saintly figure, but just it in a sort of deep and rich and living way. There was, there was something different there. Mm-hmm. And then, and then just through the process of evaluating how can somebody know all these things but not live by them? What about the questions that I can't have answered? And then and then conversations with other people. So that was the point where it tipped in all these questions about belief and doubt, belief and unbelief, mm-hmm. claiming to believe but not living like you believe, kind of all began to weave into, into a, a more singular concept of, you know, how, how can I assist other believers to a place of more genuine faith to hold open-handed the things that they can't know and to hold mm-hmm. really tightly to the things that they need to know. Don't you think there's a particular set of struggles for people who grow up in the church with that? For instance, you know, when we grow up Christians and we're good kids, you know, and then we sin, you know, we do something big, big sin, or we have we have temptations and struggles yeah. that we're not supposed to have because we know all this stuff. We know better than than that. I mean, it, it seems like there's a unique struggle in that way, isn't there? I think so. I think um, like if you get if you become a Christian like late in life, right? There, there's other struggles that you have, yes. right? Am I really his? And all this kind of identity stuff, and but you're not really surprised when, yeah, when and, and X number of decades worth of of built up, yeah, yeah sin that yeah. you that you. you but know, you're you not feel. really surprised that you have these struggles because right. you know what you came from when you get. Become a Christian, you're mm-hmm. baptized at five or six or seven, and, I think, and you grew up that way, and all of a sudden you find yourself struggling. You're like, I'm not supposed to be doing this because I'm a pastor's kid or you know, I'm an elder's kid or, or just... I think you know. the hardest thing about it, being a church kid, so I, I quote unquote, gave my life to Christ in first grade, Yeah, you know, so sat on my dad's knee, prayed a prayer yeah. of salvation. Was that the point at which I was saved? Right. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really know. Um. I, from that point on, I, I viewed myself as a Christian. I have, mm-hmm. I have, you know, tried to live like it yeah. with many, many failures. But the thing for church people, church kids, that is so difficult is there's there is not a transformative effect right. because there's very little before and after. It's it's this much more subtle sense of I am a sinner, but I don't really know what that means. Right. Other than like, I know theologically that it means I can't please God. Like I didn't, there's a reason why we view people's testimonies who are like, I was a drug addict. Uh, I was a serial yeah. cheater on my spouse, whatever. God came into my life and broke these things down. And now I'm a different person. You mm-hmm. look at that and you, That's awesome. the old has gone, the new has come. I yeah. see what that means. Whereas if you give your life to Christ at six, like what is the old right. and what is the new? And so that's where this deeply rooted faith in God has to we I think we have to find a way to communicate it. Yeah. Free people up to I mean, as you mentioned, that the fuller study kind of have the freedom to find it, explore yeah. it, and so that it's genuine, not just rote. I want to pivot of now now you're raising two daughters, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I have four kids. And so what are the th- kinds of things you're thinking about as you're raising your your daughters, like in order to provide an environment where faith can grow, but you kind of want to allow them space and yeah. you, you're trying to teach them the scriptures afresh. But I mean, 
what are you thinking about with that? Um, first and foremost, I'm thinking I have no blasted idea what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's very easy to write out these things and go, parents should be like this. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know what parents should be like. I know what my parents did. I know some things that they did that yeah. I look at and I go, that was really good. Some things yeah. they did that I look at and I go, I want to do things differently. Right. Um, and I'm sure they were doing their best and I'm going to do my best and it's going to look different. Um, but then, but then the other, the other piece is I want to make interactions about the Bible with the Bible and and with God more woven into the fabric of everyday life mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of this this is going to offend some people the idea of family worship for example is something that I look at and I kind of cringe at yeah because I feel like that kind of takes those things and sets it apart as opposed to I mean that does not seem like a relational interaction yeah. to me and I realize adoration and praise and those kinds of things are very significant in a, in a spiritual yeah. life. But I want my daughter to have the kind of interactions with God and with me where she can come to me and say, hey, I don't understand this. Right. And instead of going, oh, 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 you need to think this way about God, I talk through how I think about it. And I try, yeah. to, I try to present a vision and an understanding of God that makes her go, okay, I get it a little bit more, and I like that. I, I, I want them to like Jesus more because of my interactions with them and with him. It seems like family worship is a good idea if we're not too legalistic about like how you do it versus how I do it. So like in our family, and you probably find the same thing, right? There's so many teachable moments. And so sometimes we have formal times where we're reading through scriptures or doing a devotional or doing something, but other times it's just, it's just like teachable moments, right? I mean, when you have kids, there's a lot of teachable moments. A lot of times yeah. where they're messing up or they're doing something yep. wrong or or they just have questions or you're outside looking at the stars or just like, why is this happening in the world? And I have found, and you probably too, like those have been richer times of, yeah. of teaching. And it doesn't kind of, as you said, restrict, okay, this is when we do the God stuff and everything else is just kind of something else. Right. And I realize most people who do family worship don't think about it that way. I just fear that kids are incredibly black and white thinkers. Yeah. Everything is black and white. They want to know, yes or yeah. no, can I do this? What What is allowed? What isn't? They want to know the line mm-hmm. so that they can tow it. Um, and so when you set aside these times and it's... I. I know from my own experience as a child, it's sort of like, oh, that's the God time, and this other stuff is the rest of lifetime. And yes, God is involved in it, but maybe it's a little bit less clear. Whereas those those teachable moments are the kinds of things where, you know, my daughter, um, she, she's just finishing up third grade. At the beginning of the year, transition to third grade was hard. She was, she was having... It was just it was much more intense than second grade yeah. had been. So she's trying to figure out how to do this math homework, and week after week, it was just very difficult. And so she's like, "Dad, can we pray about this that I would get better at math?" Absolutely, You're like, that's awesome. So yeah, we I mean, we prayed about it, and uh, next day, well, I'm not any better at math, <laughs> Dad. What is it called when you pray for something and God just does it and changes something? I said, "Well, you mean like a miracle?" She goes, "Yeah. How come it's not like that every time?" Mm-hmm. That's a great opportunity. Well, that, yeah, that's the kind of conversation oh, that yeah. stands out in my mind as a reality of God, God's sovereignty, mm-hmm. prayer, interaction with God, connecting with about the most mundane and boring thing in everyday life, which is math homework. And and so it's it's that kind of stuff that I look at and I go, how can I create an environment where more of that can happen? Yeah. And of course, those questions always come up at bedtime because they're looking to delay sleep. <laughs> yeah. And so I need to be a little bit less rigid about bedtime and yeah. go, okay, well, I'll take 15 minutes and talk through some of this and you'll get a little bit less sleep, but it's better for everybody. And I'll just 
pause the NBA playoff game. That's right. I need to. Yeah. I need to work on that. Well, Barnabas Piper, thanks so much for joining us here. Great conversation and encourage everyone to get your book, Help My Unbelief. And I know they can uh, pre-order it now and hopefully Mm -hmm. uh, it'll help a lot of people. Thanks for, for being here. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. I've enjoyed being on. I want to thank Barnabas Piper for that terrific conversation. Really fun to have him here in the studio. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by sending us an email at wayhome at erlc.com or better yet, writing a review on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast catcher. If you're interested in our other conversations with Christian leaders like Matt Chandler or David Platt, or Karen Swallow Pryor or others, Go to my website, danieldarling.com, and click on the podcast page. You'll find all of them there, or you can go to erlc.com slash podcasts to find out more. You'll also find out information about this special event we're hosting at the SBC convention in Columbus, June 15th, Monday evening, 9 p.m., with Russell Moore and Mark Dever. That information will be at danieldarling.com. But for now, thank you very much for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Mm-hmm.